The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this evening is The Vision. Uh, This is part two in a brief series here at the end of chapter one. We began with the introduction at the beginning of chapter one. We moved on to the greeting uh, and then moved beyond the greeting to uh, the commission of John to write. And now we come to the end of chapter one and John's vision, uh, that beginning really in verse 12, but extending through the end of the chapter. Uh, Tonight, our text primarily verses 12 through 16, and then we'll wrap up this uh, section of text next week in part three uh, as we consider the rest of the chapter. So we're back in our evening study through the revelation of Jesus Christ, a verse-by-verse exposition of this magnificent book. And as we come to the text under our consideration this evening, we're being ushered now into the visionary experience of the Apostle John. This is a visionary experience. John is being given a vision, and the Apostle John bears witness now uh, to the risen, glorified, and exalted Jesus Christ. He has a vision, given a vision, of the risen Christ. It's in this way, then, that the revelation of Jesus Christ begins. Here is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see him, as it were, with eyes of faith through what has been revealed to the apostle John. John, uh, the beloved apostle, describes himself as our brother. And I love that. (laughs) He's our brother. He's our companion, if you will, in the tribulation. He's our brother and companion in the difficulty. It's what that word means. Uh, That difficulty, that tribulation began in his day. It continues to our day. We are the church militant. We are the church in tribulation, the church under persecution, as it were, in in these end times, times in which peril has come. A fellow soldier, John describes himself essentially as a fellow soldier with us in the kingdom, a fellow soldier in the endurance, the patience or the perseverance of Jesus Christ. And John is suffering for the the cause of Christ. If you ask John, will the church go through the tribulation? John's going to say, Yes and amen, all right? John is currently going through tribulation and he calls himself our brother in the tribulation, right? And John, suffering for the cause of Christ, going through tribulation, going through difficulty now, exiled on the island of Patmos, is in the spirit on the Lord's day and John hears this megas voice, this loud voice, a voice like a trumpet. And as you can imagine, John The beloved apostle had been very used to hearing the voice of Jesus Christ, hadn't he? In his time with the Lord Jesus Christ, in his earthly ministry, he often talked with the Lord Jesus Christ. He had the blessing of being with him during his earthly ministry. So he's had the blessing, the joy of talking to the Lord many times. But the voice that John now hears is distinctively different. It's markedly different. Like the voice that thundered from Sinai in the days of Moses, This voice, like a great trumpet, a manifestation of divine power and divine authority. Having heard this great voice like a trumpet, John then turns to see the voice. It's an interesting expression, but he wants to see the one who is speaking to him. The voice may have been unexpected in its power, unexpected as it were in its authority. And when he turns, what does John then see? He sees a vision of seven golden lampstands and one in the midst of the lampstands like the incarnate Christ, the son of man. And John then is given a revelation of the son of man in his exalted glory. And that's what we see here in the text, verses 12 through the end of the chapter. Now think with me for a moment about the impact of this vision of the risen and exalted Christ in John's context. This is the point. This is an important point that can't be lost on us, right, in our context too. But think with me about the impact of that vision in John's particular context, right? John is in the midst of the tribulation. He's undergoing difficulty, adversity. He's suffering for the cause of the kingdom. John is exiled for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He tells us that in the introduction. He's imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos, Legend has it that John wrote this letter from a cave on the island of Patmos. What's John doing there? What is he doing exiled on the island of Patmos? John is following the path of his forerunner. John following the path of his elder brother, 
following the path of the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead, the one who went before him. He is suffering as his Lord suffered, suffering in the cause of Christ. As Paul would later say, he's making up, as it were, in his own suffering, the afflictions that were lacking in Christ's, right? Jesus Christ suffered before he entered his glory, and John will take the same path to glory that Christ took. Believers, brothers, companions with John in the tribulation will be counted worthy to take the same path that Jesus Christ took when he entered his own glory. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in this present age will suffer persecution. It's the path of suffering. It's the path of tribulation. It's the path of obedient sonship. And I would submit to you, this is the path of the Christian. This is the path of the Christian life. We've got to be prepared for this, brothers and sisters. The church will go through tribulation. The church will go through suffering. Paul says to the Philippians, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to what? To suffer for his sake. To suffer for his sake. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. We are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Amen, right? You look forward to being glorified together with the Lord Jesus Christ. That glory comes through suffering. I was reminded of a sermon that our brother preached not long ago, right? Suffering now, glory later, All right? Suffering now, glory later. First Peter chapter two, verse 20. When you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, if you persevere through it, if you endure through it, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called. Why? Why were we called to suffer? Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. It's interesting that we can rejoice, and we rejoice to the extent that we partake of Christ's own sufferings, right? The disciples counting themselves to be worthy, to suffer shame for the name of Christ when they were uh, um, arrested and then beaten uh, for his namesake, right? To the extent that we suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ, to the extent that we partake of his sufferings, then we can rejoice. And when his glory is revealed, Peter says, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. What's going on here? What's going on here? We're being prepared. That's what's going on here. John himself encouraged his faith bolstered by the vision of the exalted Christ who even now sits in glory after his suffering. And brothers and sisters, we'll sit with him in glory after ours, right? If we follow in his steps, if we follow his example. The book of Revelation is a revelation of the Christ in glory. And not just in glory, but having triumphed having triumphed, having conquered through suffering. So what was the impact of this revelation on the heart and mind of John as he sits in that cave on the Isle of Patmos, exiled, imprisoned for the word of God? It was great encouragement. Can you imagine? Great encouragement. A vision of the glorified and exalted, resurrected Christ, the forerunner, the first fruits of those who will be raised in him. John certainly must have thought, I'll be there soon. I'll be there soon. Lord Jesus, come back quickly, right? Come quickly. No doubt, no doubt, John was glad with exceeding joy, glad with exceeding joy. The same impact, that same impact should be sensed, felt by us as we read the Revelation. Uh, That should have the same impact on us as we go through difficulty. And the difficulty, brothers and sisters, is coming. It's coming, persecution coming, it's increasing. Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. So as that takes place in our own context, and as we go through trials, and as we go through difficulties as a church, we should be glad with exceeding joy that we've been counted worthy to suffer, to partake of Christ's sufferings. And to the degree, to the extent that we partake of his sufferings, we should rejoice with great joy. John, think with me, John is not seeing things as they will be in some future time at the future return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the consummation of all things, John in this vision is seeing things as they now presently are. 
He's seeing things as they are, as they now are. And they're this way, brothers and sisters, for you and I today. Jesus Christ is saying to us who are alive and remain, in essence, he's saying, come up here. (laughs) Come up here, I'm gonna show you. Let me show you how things are right now. What it's like behind the curtain, as it were, in the throne room of heaven, our forerunner who has gone before us, who has entered behind the veil by his own blood, he sits there at the right hand of the ancient of days, and this is what it's like right now in heaven. Let me show you. Let me show you what it's like. And he gives John a vision. It's beautiful. Beautiful. Let me show you how things are right now. You may suffer for a little while. These momentary light afflictions are producing you a far greater weight of glory. Let me show you what awaits you what awaits those who have put their faith and trust in me. Suffer with me, Jesus says, and we will be glorified together. Jesus Christ rose bodily into heaven. It's an amazing thought. You meditate on that for a moment. A glorified man. And rising bodily into heaven, a glorified man, Jesus Christ is the first of many sons of glory. He's the captain of our salvation, but will bring many sons to glory. And he is seated there bodily at the right hand of the majesty, making intercession for us and soon to come again, receiving us to himself that where he is now, there we may be also. Doesn't matter the slander of the adversary, no matter the persecution of the saints, no matter the momentary light affliction that we endure on this side of eternity, the devil may be here prowling like a lion, seeking whom he may devour, but our place is with the exalted Christ in the very throne room of heaven, and he's already there waiting for us. But while there waiting for us, he's still with us, isn't he? He's not left us orphans, as he told his disciples in the upper room that night before his crucifixion. He's with us by his spirit. He's with us as one walking in the midst of the lampstands, chapter one. The seven lampstands symbolizing the church in this world. Seven being a a symbol of completion. And walking amongst the lampstands, he has sent forth the seven spirits of God who are before the throne of God, anointing them, empowering them as it were, with the oil that they need that they may be a light to the nations. He says to Zerubbabel, a type of him who was to come, the builder of this temple, the builder of the church, so to speak, living stone upon living stone, he says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against the spreading of the light into the darkness. This is not a vision merely for the saints in some distant future time. This is a vision for the saints in our very present troublesome time. And what John sees, what is it that John sees now that should be so encouraging to us? Well, first we see John's revelation, verses 12 through 16. Then we see John's reaction in verse 17. And finally, we see the Lord's response in verses 17 and 18. John's revelation, John's reaction, and the Lord's response. Now consider with me first John's revelation. John turns to see the trumpeted voice in verse 13. And when he turns, he sees, verse 13, one like the son of man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head, his hair were, like, were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. His voice as the sound of many waters, He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Now notice at the outset, once more, again, that the emphasis here of the revelation is on what John sees. Verse 11, John is to write in a book the the things that he sees. Nevertheless, now when John then communicates what he sees in writing, and then that that writing is meant to be read and understood. John communicates what he sees, and then we read, and we're to understand. What we're not to do, as we think about the way that the book of the Revelation is communicated to us, what we're not to do is to attempt to recreate in our minds a Polaroid, if you will, of what Jesus Christ looks like. We're not to form a 
uh, sit down with a police sketch artist, right, and try to draw out, and his eyes were flaming, and his, there was a sword coming out of his mouth, so that we can track him down, right, we're, we're, to, to know what he looks like. That's not the point of the revelation. What we are to do is we're to take what John communicates, and again, what John saw, how John saw, we, we simply don't know. We have the symbols, we have what John expressed here, and we're to take those symbols then and to understand what is being communicated to us through the symbols that John now sees, through the symbols of John's vision. Well, the vision begins with one like the Son of Man. He sees, he turns to see the trumpeted voice and sees one like the Son of Man. Now, if you've read your Bible, you know that this is a favored self-description of the Lord. He often refers to himself as the Son of Man. Eighty-some-odd times uh, in the Gospels of the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ refers to himself as the Son of Man. But that name, that title, the Son of Man, comes out of the Old Testament, and it communicates something to us, okay? It's used more than 90 times in the book of Ezekiel, referring to the prophet, referring to the prophet Ezekiel. But very significantly, uh, and... In, on the, in the writings of a contemporary, very significantly, in the book of Daniel, it refers there to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This title, the Son of Man, is loaded, packed with messianic expectations. All right, turn back with me to Daniel chapter 7. Let's look at that together. Daniel chapter 7. And again, loaded, loaded with messianic expectations. Jesus Christ was using this title very intentionally. It wasn't arbitrary. It wasn't simply or only emphasizing his humanity. Uh, it was loaded with theological significance. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Now, here, Daniel receives his own vision. He has his own vision of the heavenly throne room, and he watches in verse 9, as thrones there were put in place, and Yahweh, the Ancient of Days, was seated. Then he records this in verse 13. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Again, that a title for the enfleshed, incarnate Jesus Christ, bodily. Do you see? One like the Son of Man, one who came in appearance like a man. We'll talk about that in a moment. One like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. In other words, coming in the clouds of divine glory. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. As Jesus Christ said, all authority has been given to him, right? All authority. That, verse 14, all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Now, this took place, you think with me, we've talked about this text before, this took place at the bodily ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is approaching heaven on the clouds of glory. He's approaching the ancient of days coming in the clouds of glory, and he's ascending there, he's ascending there bodily. He is the enfleshed son of man, Right? So back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 13, John is given a vision of the same exalted king, approaching the ancient of days, as it were, coming on the clouds of glory, one like the Son of Man, a title emphasizing his humanity. And there in John's vision, Revelation chapter 1, he is bodily in the throne room of heaven, one like the Son of Man. Having come in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, Philippians chapter 2, made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, Hebrews chapter 2, a body prepared for him, Hebrews chapter 10. Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he, the Son of Man, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And all of these things made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. We're talking about the incarnate Christ. Do you see? The incarnate Christ. He is the son of man, fully God and fully one of us, fully human, and now seated at the right hand of the ancient of days. The priests, 
remember the Lord's account, the gospel accounts of the Lord's crucifixion. The priests in the Sanhedrin, they knew exactly what Jesus Christ meant when he used that title for himself. It wasn't lost on the Jews. In Mark 14, when he faced the council before they crucified him, the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus said to him, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The son of man, the incarnate Christ, bodily ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the power, coming there, Daniel 7.13, on the clouds of heaven. Do you see? Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. They couldn't get it. Their heads wrapped around it. Could not understand. The high priest understood exactly what Jesus Christ meant by the, type, the title. He understood by calling himself the son of man, Jesus was claiming to be the Christ, the son of God, making himself equal with God, saying, I am the one enthroned with the ancient of days and coming in the clouds of his glory. And it's this one, this one, who is seen by John in the midst of the assembly, as it were, in the midst of the lampstands, in the midst of the churches, in the midst of spirit-empowered lights as they shine in the darkness. This is the vision of John. It begins with one like the Son of Man, a loaded theological title for the Lord Jesus Christ. Much there to consider. Well, John, having seen one now, behold, one like the Son of Man, he turns his attention to the way that he's dressed. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, he is clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band, with a golden sash. Now, there's a purpose or a function to how he is dressed. The clothing here, verse 13, isn't arbitrary. Nothing here is arbitrary. Nothing is arbitrary. So if we understand Revelation as the capstone of the scriptures, and if we rightly, as we should, turn back then to the Old Testament to understand the way in which he's dressed, to understand the significance of his dress, where do we find that clothing? Where do we find vestments like these? We find vestments like these worn by those who served in the temple. Turn a few pages to the right, Revelation chapter 15. This is clothing, vestments, if you will, marked by those who served in the temple. Revelation chapter 15, look there at verse 5. Now, after these things, I looked and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. It's interesting. It's called the tabernacle of testimony or the tent of testimony because the law of God, uh, the word of God was put into the Ark of the Covenant where God is said to dwell between the cherubim. Uh, It's the tabernacle of testimony, God's testimony. So the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. And out of the temple came seven angels having seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with golden bands. Now here we see them in robes, their chests girded with golden bands. And where are they coming out of? They're coming out of the temple, coming out of the tabernacle in heaven. Where is it that we find Jesus Christ in John's vision? He's walking in the midst of the lampstands, isn't he? Where do we find lampstands in the Old Testament? We find the lampstand in the temple, in the temple, the heavenly temple, right? A picture of the heavenly temple. Who is it that we find in the temple? We read this last week. Who is it that we find tending to the lampstands in the temple, trimming its wicks, filling them with oil? Who does that? The priest, in particular, the high priest. Listen to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 24 in verse one. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to make the lamps burn continually. Outside the veil of the testimony, in the tabernacle of meeting, Aaron, the high priest, shall be in charge of it from evening until morning before the Lord continually. And it shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord 
continually. What do we see the Lord Jesus Christ? Our great high priest. What do we find the Lord doing? Tending to the lampstands, walking in the midst of the lampstands, trimming their wicks, making sure they're filled with oil, right? So that the lampstands provide a light to the nations. They are a continually lit uh, light, a lit lamp, as it were, shining in the darkness. Listen to Exodus chapter 28, beginning in verse three, listen. Speaking of the high priest, the Lord commands, make Aaron's garments to consecrate him that he may minister to me as priest. And these are the garments which they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully worn, woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. Jesus Christ is our great high priest, right? Our high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek before the Lord continually, always living there to make intercession for us in the temple, in the throne room of God, the heavenly temple, where the Lord is said to dwell between the cherubim and he is there interceding for, caring for his church, the lampstands, walking amidst the golden lampstands, tending to them, trimming their wicks, filling them with oil. He instructs his church, doesn't he? He corrects his church, rebukes his church, chastens his church. He further sanctifies his church. He encourages his church. He loves, he loves his church. Trimming the wicks, so to speak, that they may continue to shine in the darkness by the oil of the spirit. So our great high priest dressed like a priest. We see the garb, if you will, of a priest in John's vision. Now John then continues beyond describing his dress to now describing his appearance. Verse 14, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Where have we seen that description before? Turn back to Daniel chapter seven. Daniel chapter seven. I'll tell you, as we go through the book of Revelation, you probably just keep a permanent thumb in Daniel. <laughs> as much that we uh, will learn from Daniel as we walk through Revelation together. Sounds familiar, this description of the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ and his glory. Daniel chapter seven, look at verse nine. Daniel says, in his vision, I watched till thrones were put in place and the ancient of days was seated. Now listen to how the ancient of days is described. His garment was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. The throne was a fiery flame. Its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. 10,000 times 10,000, myriads upon myriads stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. So in Daniel chapter seven, the great judge takes his seat in the heavenly courtroom. And here we see, don't we, the images of the ancient of days and the, images of, the image of one like the son of man. We see these images converge, don't we? We see there's a distinction between the father and the son. And yet at the same time, there is a convergence in the way that they are described in who John sees. And what we have disclosed in that convergence is the fact that there is one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Lord Jesus Christ revealed now in terms reminiscent of Yahweh, the Ancient of Days. Why is that? Why is that? Because Jesus Christ is Yahweh, the ancient of days. Jesus Christ is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Father is God. And we see this convergence now of images as the Lord Jesus Christ himself is described by John in his vision. White hair, right? White hair. White hair acquired, generally speaking, over a long life. Some of us go white early. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, over a long life, uh, white hair is to be an indication of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 31, the silver-haired head is a crown of glory. If it is found, if, if it is found in the way of righteousness, it's a folly to one not found in the way of righteousness, right? His hair, the Lord's hair is white like wool, white as snow. Snow is about the, 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 the whitest thing that the writers of scripture can conceive of to describe there. It's... um. You remember the, the, the transfiguration and the account of the transfiguration. They're on the mountain together and um, the Lord is described as gleaming white with garments so white um, that no launderer on earth 
in a way that no launderer on earth can whiten them, right? Just the words, the words fail. The words fall short of describing the glory that he's beholding. It's white. <laughs> it's white as wool, white as snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His eyes speaking of perfect judgment. Perfect judgment. No creature hidden from his sight. All things naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We all are subject to the omniscience of him who is a refining or a consuming fire. His eyes searching, his eyes aflame of fire. The one who will judge the living and the dead, the living and the dead at his appearing, some purified as though by fire, found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the rest consumed by fire, destroyed with the brightness of his coming. When he comes in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here he is, eyes aflame of fire, walking amongst his lampstands. Our great high priest, purifying, sanctifying, making us holy, judge over all, setting the righteous at his right hand, if you will, making a distinction between truth and error, perfect in holiness from his head to his feet. Listen to verse 15. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, his voice as the sound of many waters. His voice again heard as a manifestation of divine power, uh, divine authority. I've not ever been to, for example, Niagara Falls, but I've heard it said by those who have been that the sound, the closer you get to the falls, the sound is deafening, just deafening, a sound of many waters, a manifestation of power, right? Power, a manifestation of authority reminds us of the vision of Ezekiel in chapter 43, verse 1. Turn there with me, Ezekiel chapter 43. Just look there in context. This vision of Ezekiel chapter 43, Ezekiel is taken away in a vision, placed on a high mountain. And he's placed on a high mountain next to a man whose appearance was like bronze, And this man has a measuring rod in his hand. And after the new covenant is given, Ezekiel is now shown a new city and a new temple. So put this in perspective with me. Let's understand the vision given here to Ezekiel. After the new covenant, the new covenant, that's the covenant that Jesus Christ purchased in his own blood, the covenant by which we are saved, united to him by faith, indwelt with his spirit, given a new heart, right? This is the covenant of which Jesus Christ is the mediator. After the new covenant is prophesied to Ezekiel, Ezekiel is then shown a new city and a new temple. Listen to verse one. Afterward, he brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters. The earth shone with his glory. Here it is again, a divine manifestation of divine power and authority. Now, Ezekiel says, verse three, it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw which, uh, when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Chevar, and I fell on my face. It's what John does in his vision too, doesn't it? Fell on his face like a dead man. Verse four, And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate, which faces toward the east. The spirit lifted me up, brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then I heard him speaking to me from the temple while a man stood beside me. And he said to me, verse seven, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. No more. Shall the house of Israel defile my holy name? They nor their kings by their harlotry or with their carcasses, with the carcasses of their kings or their high places. When they set their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost by my doorpost with a wall between them and me, they defiled my holy name by the abominations which they committed. Therefore, I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put their harlotry and the carcasses of their kings far away from me and I will dwell in their midst forever." In other words, Ezekiel, given an image, if you will, given a vision of what will be the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly temple 
where God dwells among his people. The glory of the God of Israel in the temple of his everlasting dwelling place with men and his voice, the sound of many waters. John continues then. John continues. And again, that, that's, that is an image, if you will, a prophecy of a future temple. What will that temple be? Paul says, Peter says, what is the temple? The temple is living stone upon living stone. It's the people of God. And God dwelling among his people. We'll see a fulfillment of that as we work through the book of Revelation together. But John continues back in Revelation chapter 1. And in verse 16 now, John says, He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. He had in his right hand seven stars. The right hand refers to sovereignty. Right hand refers to power, refers to authority. You would expect to find in the right hand of the king a scepter of his power. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God. He says that to the son, right? To the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. But here, in the right hand of the son of man, in his scepter hand, we find seven stars. Verse 20 tells us what the stars symbolize. Look at verse 20. They symbolize the angels, the angelos, the messengers of the seven churches. Now think with me. They symbolize, the stars symbolize the angels of the seven churches. In chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus Christ addresses the angel or the messenger of the church of Ephesus. And we see the Lord directly addressing the angelos, the messengers in each of the churches. Now, what's the connection? What's the connection? Why is the symbol of an angel, if you will, or an angelos, why is the star used of those? And what is the significance of that connection? Well, it comes to us from all places, from the mouth of Balaam the prophet in Numbers chapter 24. Turn back with me to Numbers, Numbers 24. where we see one of the first recorded examples in Scripture of the scepter and of the stars from the mouth of that prophet for prophet, (laughs) Balaam. Now, Numbers 24, Balak, king of the Moabites, wanted to curse Israel because he wanted to to defeat them in battle. He wanted to drive them out from what he thought was his land. And so they employed the services of Balaam, prophet for prophet. And Balak implored Balaam to curse Israel three times. Now, three times, rather than cursing Israel, Balaam blessed Israel. Only able to speak as the Lord gave him utterance, Balaam was forced, as it were, to bless Israel. So in verse 3, Numbers chapter 24, verse 3, he took up his oracle and he said, the utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened, The utterance of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. Balaam's given a vision here, isn't he? How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. He shall pour water from his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters. Well, needless to say, Balak is beside himself with anger after that. I've brought you here to curse Israel, and look, you've blessed Israel three times. So Balak is about to send Balaam away empty-handed when Balaam then then says this in verse 14. Look at verse 14. And now, indeed, I am going to my people. Come, I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the latter days. Now here, Balaam is speaking of the time of the end, right? The latter days. So he took up his oracle, verse 15, and he said, the utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened, the utterance of him who hears the words of God and who has knowledge, the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. Verse 17, I see him, 
but not now. Who is that? I behold him, but not now, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. He comes out of Israel as a star and as a scepter, as a ruler, as one with authority, as a king. He comes out of Israel as a star and a scepter. The first, the star denoting his glory, he is the bright and morning star. The last, denoting his power, he is the one who takes the scepter of dominion, who takes the scepter of the kingdom. Who are we speaking of? This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is the prophecy of the coming king. I see him, verse 17, uh, Balaam says, but not now. I behold him, but not near. He's afar off, but he's coming. David would be the initial type. David would come. David would crush Moab, give peace all around Israel by crushing their enemies. But ultimately, David is just a type. Who is the ultimate anti-type? The Lord Jesus Christ, right? A man after God's own heart, uh, the, great, the greater David. Now he comes out of Israel as a star, comes out of Israel as a scepter. Listen to Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. Jesus says, Revelation twenty-two sixteen, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. It's interesting, isn't it? Wise men at his birth would seek his star rising in the east. Balaam says he would be one to destroy or to subdue, to rule over all the sons of tumult. The word there for tumult is the word Seth. What does that make you think of? Seth, (laughs) the the son of Adam, meaning he would destroy or he would rule over, subdue all the sons of Seth, all men. The rest of Adam's sons were cut off by the flood. The offspring of Seth remained. And he, this coming scepter, this coming star, would rule all the sons of Seth. Edom, verse 18, Edom shall be his possession. Seir also, his enemies shall be a possession, while Israel does valiantly. Who is Israel in latter days? It's his people, God's people, the church. Out of Jacob, one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. In other words, a star, a star is a symbol of the Lord's glory. In particular, a star becomes a symbol symbol of the glory of God's people. It becomes a, a symbol, if you will, of the glory of the church, glory of Israel. Revelation 1, verse 16, seven stars are found in the right hand of his power, and his authority. They are the angelos, or the messengers. He has the seven lampstands, right, which are the churches, and the seven stars in his scepter hand, which are the messengers, the messengers, the angelos of the churches. Seven, again, denoting perfection or completion. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, listen, verse 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise, verse three, shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Like the stars forever and ever. They are the messengers, the seven stars, the messengers of the seven churches. The seven stars, the messengers, if you will, the lights that shine. The stars that shine in the darkness, the stars are the lights that shine from the seven lampstands. They are the messengers of the churches. They are the ones who turn many to righteousness. They are those who are wise. They shine like the stars forever and ever. The stars, they're found in the right hand of his authority. Those stars in the right hand of his authority exercise or administer his rule. They exercise or administer his authority and It's the authority of one who is himself the bright and morning star. They exercise his rule. They exercise his reign. They exercise his dominion, as it were, over the nations. They exercise his rule. They're the stars in the scepter hand of the one who has all authority. And we see in the stars of the right hand, we see in them a convergence, if you will, with the symbol of the scepter, a symbol of his dominion, a symbol of his rule over his kingdom. So the stars convey then, think with me, the stars convey, as it were, 
his authority, his dominion, his rule. They do so as his angelos, his messengers. They, in a sense, rule and reign with him. They are the scepter in his right hand. They rule and reign with him. They have a declarative authority. They have taken his word, his authority, they have taken in their mouths, and they are identified with each of the churches, administering the rule and authority of the one who has all authority and administering that rule and authority over the the nations. Not only over the churches, but over the nations. So who are the stars who turn many to righteousness? Who are those who are wise, who shine like the brightness of the firmament? Who are his messengers sent forth from his churches to rule over the nations? Who are those stars? Who are those who rule and reign with him, administering the authority of his word wherever they go? Who is that? It's his people. It's his people. We, the people of God, are the lights of the lampstand. The people of God are the lights that shine in a dark place, right? Don't put your light under a bushel, right? (laughs) Why? You are a light. You're to be as a city set on a hill, a light shining in a dark place. His people, we, his people, are the stars in his scepter. The stars, we are the stars, the lights of the churches, the lights of the lampstand. Each of the seven lampstands having seven lights, right? And then seven, again, speaking of completion, speaking of wholeness, perfection, entirety. The seven lampstands representing the entirety of his church. And each of the seven lampstands having seven lights, seven stars, representing the messengers of the churches, the stars in his scepter hand. What is it that they take into the world? They take into the world the two-edged sword that proceeds from his mouth. We're to rule with him. And the way that we rule with him in this age is by preaching his word, by proclaiming his gospel to the nations, by shining as a light in the darkness. That's how we rule and reign with him. We administer his authority in a dark place by shining as lights on the lampstand. That's how we rule and reign with him. Philip Hughes, Philip Hughes says this, the sword, which is the Lord's word, has two edges. It never fails to cut If it does not cut with the edge of salvation, it cuts with the edge of condemnation. For the word of redemption to all who believe is at the same time the word of destruction to those who refuse to believe. We're going to hear his word to the churches beginning in chapter 2. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I love that description. I love that description. And I don't think you can miss the significance of the lampstands, the lights on the lampstands, the stars having the authority uh, delegated to them, as it were, in his scepter hand and preaching to the nations. We're to be a light, brothers and sisters. And listen, if we're to rule and reign with him, as he rules even now as king, for us to rule with him means to administer his word with his authority. We are to proclaim his truth with his authority. We are the pillar and buttress of the truth. And so to shine like the stars in the firmament, we must turn many from their sins, right? Turn many to righteousness. And those who turn many to righteousness are the stars that shine in the firmament. We're to administer his rule and reign even now during this age while he is gathering together his elect from the four corners of the earth. John's description then ends with his face in verse 16. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Overwhelming sound, unspeakable glory, blinding light. Overwhelmed by this sight, John says, I fell at his feet as dead. This is our prophet, priest, and king. The judge of all the earth. This is our elder brother. The one who has secured salvation for us all, the one who has gone before us behind the veil, the one who has redeemed us by his blood, the first fruits of all of those who would put their faith and trust in him, who would be raised from the dead as he was raised. With the same power with which he was raised, he's going to raise us when he comes. We have the, the privilege, the blessing of serving him, not just serving with him, but ruling and reigning with him as stars, as lights in the firmament in a dark place.
with the eyes of faith, like John, we turn to see his voice. And we are illumined by his spirit. The oil of his spirit poured into the lampstands to empower the witness of his people to be the seven stars in his right hand. We're illumined by his spirit to bear witness, to shine forth the light. Gives us great motivation to do that, doesn't it? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, this is a a sight to behold. It is glorious in our eyes. We praise you and thank you, Lord, for what is being communicated to you, to us here from your word. Lord, how you, our forerunner, our elder brother, has gone before us into glory. And as sure as you are seated there at the right hand of the Ancient of Days, is as sure as you are preparing a place for us and coming again for us to receive us, that where you are, we may be also. And we rejoice, Lord, in the encouragement that that provides us during this time when it is difficult and when we face difficulty and adversity and when the world seems to be burning around us. We praise you and thank you that you are the one with all authority. You are the one with ultimate wisdom, all wisdom, omnisapient, that you are the one, Lord, with eyes, a flame of fire, who sees all, all laid bare before you, naked before him with whom we must give account. And you are the one with all power, all authority, having the scepter of righteousness in your right hand, the scepter, the seven stars, walking amidst the seven golden lampstands, empowering them by the oil of your spirit for their mission in this world. We praise you, Lord, and thank you that We can serve you in this way. You've given us such privilege, Lord, of ruling and reigning with you in this way, proclaiming your word, proclaiming your truth as the pillar and buttress of the truth, proclaiming your word to the nations. We praise you and thank you for that joy. God, I pray you would find us faithful in that work. Find us faithful to fulfill the commission that you've given us. Lord, that you may be glorified. You may be magnified. Lord, that you would receive the full reward of your suffering. We love you. We thank you for this time together in your word. Help us, Lord, to meditate on these things, to understand these things. Show us wondrous things from your law. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.